Mr. Much, good morning. Morning. Shall we get started, Drew, or do you want to wait a little bit? I, I think we good to start. Let's do. All right. Uh, good morning, and welcome to the February mid-month meeting of the Planning Commission. Um, these meetings are um, more about education, more about continued study and work and study sessions. Uh, we won't conduct business um, during these sessions. Uh, but they are uh, public and uh, and live streamed and recorded call um, because they are hybrid call. Drew, <clears throat> Drew, would you walk us through the uh, the rules of the call? Yes. Good morning, everyone. My name is Drew Bilby, Planner One. Uh, joining me here in the room is Jeff Crick, Planning and Development Services Director, and Becky Pepper, Planning Manager. I will be helping facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. We will work alongside the chair to facilitate the meeting proceedings. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go to directly to the Zoom facilitator. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting when you are participating, please turn on your video. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat to the Zoom facilitator. The city reserves the right to mute or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Commissioner Rexroad. Thank you, Drew. Uh, before we get started, is there anyone or anything in the room that uh, we need to do an update on? Vice Chair, I could give an update on our um uh, planning commission that would be great, Becky. Thank you. Please. I will do that. And um, so I'll start. Um, as you're aware, uh, we are having a special meeting on uh, next Wednesday, February 15th. That'll be a continuation of the um, January 25th meeting that was suspended due to, due to an emergency. Um, so we'll continue with those um, items uh, minus the preliminary development plan that was, uh, we were in that we were uh, in the process of uh, considering. Um, and then on Wednesday, February 22nd, we'll have our regularly scheduled planning commission meeting. Um, as a reminder, Monday is President's Day. And so um, we won't have a planning commission meeting on that day. We'll only have the one on the Wednesday, the 22nd. And um, it is a quite uh, lengthy agenda. I think I counted up that there are um, 16 uh, applications. Um, some of those will be grouped into uh, specific projects, so it's about 10 items that um, will be brought before you. I'm going to try to briefly go through kind of an overview of what those are um, and uh, to not take up the entire meeting and be able to let uh, Elizabeth uh, get to the land development code thing. So um, one of the um, projects that contains multiple um, applications is a request for, um, from our the city's municipal services and operations department to um, kind of relocate some of their facilities that are currently located throughout town onto uh, one property that's located in Venture Park. Um, those applications uh, associated with that, there's a comprehensive plan amendment. Um, there are uh, two rezonings. One of them, uh, they're, they're both rezonings to the GPI, general public and institutional district, um, there is some a little bit of floodplain on the property, though, so that second zoning then adds a floodplain overlay to that. 
Um, and then there is a special use permit that's associated with that. Um, that particular use would require a, um, a institutional development plan, which is reviewed through the special use permit uh, for that GPI district. And the applicant for that's the city, is that right? Thank that's correct. Okay, thank you. And then we have um, a few applications that um, pertain to residential development. Um, there's going to be a preliminary plat brought before you. Um, that would be um, it's property that's um, just south of I-70, um, a little ways west of Castle uh, Drive. It would um, facilitate um, the development of uh, 146 um, single-family lots on 61 acres. Um, this will be a little bit familiar to you. Previously, you've seen uh, uh, annexation and rezonings related to, to this property. So this is a, another step in that development process. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, um, there are some preliminary development plans um, being brought before you, um, I believe three, the first of which is for property located um, uh, on the south side of 6th Street, uh, east of Branchwood Drive. Um, this property, uh, the development on this property would facilitate a two-story multi-dwelling structure. Then we have um, a couple of preliminary development plans that are located um, um, south of Peterson Road, um, in between Castle Drive and Monterey Way. Um, one of them is proposing 14 lots for the development of duplexes, and then the other is proposing 50 lots on 18 acres for um, single-family development. Hmm. And that one also has a rezoning with it, so it's a, a rezoning to with a plan development overlay, and then that plan development overlay, then application is also included. Um, and then we have a, a rezoning request. Um, this is for property located at 5101 Parker Court. So this is north of Wakarusa Drive and east of Queens Road. Um, the property is currently zoned RS5 with a PD overlay. Um, this request is to remove that PD overlay so that both base zoning district would remain RS5. It would just remove that, that PD requirement. Um, kind of the reason being originally they had uh, the development proposal included private streets, which the PD overlay allows. Uh, they are no longer uh, wishing to, uh, no longer need private streets. Uh, so they're going to, uh, the request is to go to that, that base zoning district. Uh, and then we have an annexation request with some uh, attached rezonings, and this is for 85 acres um, that is located um, east of Highway 10, south of 1750 Road, and north of Rock Chalk Park. Um, the rezoning requests are for RS5, and there is some floodplain uh, on the property, so there'll be another zoning request for that RS5 with a floodplain overlay. Um, this is another one where it's going to seem uh, familiar to you. Uh, previously, there were some applications that were brought before you. One was a comprehensive plan amendment. There was an uh, annexation request for 100 acres and, and, and rezonings. The CPA request, the comprehensive plan amendment, has moved forward um, and had, had, was approved by the city commission. The applicant chose to withdraw the uh, the annexation and rezoning requests at that time. And so these are, he's bringing them, they're, they're bringing them forward uh, with these applications and it is a little bit smaller. It was hundred acres. This request is for 85. 
And then lastly, I'm going through this fast so and making it seem like there are not a lot of applications, but there are to reiterate. Um, they are, uh, the last two applications are county applications. Um, the first one would be to establish a minimum maintenance um, road designation for a portion of North 1075 Road, which is in the Wakarusa Township. Um, uh, minimum maintenance roads may be uh, a new, um, uh, for some of you, because we don't get these requests very uh, often, uh, basically what they are is that um, they are roads that would receive uh, little to no maintenance, um, and it does require that the county commission classifies them as a minimum maintenance, so the planning commission will be making that recommendation to the county commission. Uh, and then lastly, um, uh, the recently planning commission saw a request for a new quarry um, outside of Eudora, um, and uh, it was uh, it was at your November meeting, you voted and to forward a recommendation for denial. The um, applicant at the January 18th County Commission meeting, the applicant requested that the application be returned to the Planning Commission. Um, they are looking at a possible alternative uh, uh, truck route. And uh, so they're bringing that new that information forward for reconsideration. How did I do? Did I get it in under five? Wow. Any questions about any of that? A million questions, but that's what our meeting. Wow, Becky, thank you very much. We should uh, bring extra large coffee cups and pack a snack. Good advice for that night. All right, very good. Any other updates in the room or on the call? I don't believe so. Thank you. Elizabeth, you are here today to help walk us through uh, land development code update across the work you guys have been doing and help us get our heads around this. Can I just turn the call over to you? Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. And my cat was trying to join us. I didn't know he liked planning commission, um, but I decided he would qualify as a distraction. So he's in the other room now. So we did the um, overview of the um, code assessment at the meeting a couple weeks ago and um, decided that today we'd dig in a little further. Um, I can go, I've got the document up. I can go through it a little more slowly. We can take a look at the table of contents, see if anyone wants to dig in anywhere, or we can start by um, asking if anyone had questions that they brought to this meeting that they wanted answered. What is the preference of the room? you're muted i'm just seeing no specific hands going up um i'd say uh, let's walk through let's see if we could excite some of that um uh, looking at the table of contents i do have one area that i i hope to spend a little bit more time on and that's this the get a better understanding of um how we flatten our zoning um, types into this new way of thinking about the, these use types. So I think there were there were six of them, if I remember right, five or six of them. But I'd like to I'd like to be able to explore some scenarios um, inside that, so I can just better understand uh, how anything from a single family home to multifamily to a shopping center would fit into any of these various categories. Sure. Let um, let me ask: Are you thinking about our character area categories that we were talking about? Um, with the steering committee. So we kind of look at the city and say, 
you know, different neighborhoods and areas build in different ways. And we want to allow that mix to take place across those areas in a way that is developmentally fitting with the area. That's where you were thinking? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> Great. Okay. Um, Becky, can I share a screen? Yes, you should. should. I will try. Living dangerously on a Wednesday morning. Let's see what happens here. All right, I'm gonna find you guys again. We can't see your screen. You can see the screen now. Okay, so I'm at the table of contents on the code assessment. And let me just um, ground everybody again in where we are because after listening to Becky, I have a little more respect for what comes at you fast. So um, we are at the um, still at the beginning part of updating the land development code. and. To get started in that process of taking apart the entire document, plus your spare code, the form-based code that you've got sitting off to the side or the smart code, um, we read through, we talk to the community, talk to the steering committee, and um, try to get a hold of the big ideas that are floating around um, and then comb through the plans that are most relevant to this project. All plans are relevant to the code project, some way more than others, right? So you can imagine plan 2040 and the downtown plan really have specific instructions about zoning. Um, when we move into the transportation planning, we still are looking at land use and transportation, um, but we it's not always as direct everything in the plan. So we read all the plans. Um, we talk to the community, we read and reread the code, and we come up with this document that we call our roadmap it's a really, um, it's a preliminary document. It's a framework. We need to know where to jump in and we use it to check in to make sure we're heading in the right direction. We use it to make sure we've picked everything up and we use it for later conversations because inevitably three months from now, we'll be rewriting the parking standards and somebody somewhere will ask us, well, why are you doing that? And so this is kind of our check back to say, well, you know, as we got this process started, we heard um, that there's not enough parking or there's too much parking or that Lawrence wants to move to market-driven parking and we're going to let applicants decide how much parking they need and then wish them luck. So these are all things that we um, cover in this document. It's not going to have the level of detail that the draft has. And we are planning to get the draft of the zone districts and uses to staff at the end of next month. And so um, steering committee and planning commission will get to see that in April. So that's where we are. So I'm going to go through the table of contents and give you just a little bit about everything. And if you want to stop me anywhere, um, I think, um, Gary, are you calling names out today? Do you, will you moderate for me or does, um, does Drew moderate? Who's going to tell me to stop talking? <laughs> I'd ask Drew to help with that. I've, I've got a limited lens on this being remote. Excellent. So I'd ask Drew if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Okay. Forcefully, Drew, stop got a question. Okay. Okay. So um, the document introduction is intended to, you know, be that short overview, bit of a um, executive summary. We go into the plans that we're looking at. Um, you guys are familiar with the plans. Not everybody is. And sometimes this is an opportunity to um, help people who are in the project with us remember 
that the consultant team and staff are not sitting in a room together just making up things to change in the code. We actually have policy instruction that the city has set, and we follow that guidance. We jump into an analysis of the current code. So that translates to, hey, we're reading it. And, you know, if we were new um, developers coming into Lawrence, this could be some of the stuff we see here. We also compare it to, you know, what do we see in best practices in code writing and planning and where could we go with this to help it better align with the plan? So in the current analysis, we first have a summary of key recommendations. Um, and so that's if you just want to go in and see um, if we've caught a big topic. And if we haven't, if you want to talk more about it, um, it, it's on the list or we can add it to the list. Then we jump into the zone districts. The way we draft codes, we see the, the zone districts and the uses are sort of the, the core DNA of the document. Um, you, you know, you figure out what you can do on your property and what uses you can have on your property through the zone districts and the uses. And so the, the first um, big sections in the code analysis are to fine tune the zone districts. Um, we think we can make some changes to that zone district lineup to better implement the plan. Um, and to um, consolidate and update and do some reorganization in the uses. And so what, is, what does that mean in not jargon speak? We think that not all of your current zone districts are functioning like they could. Um, there are different reasons why a zone district doesn't function. Um, it, sometimes it's a really great idea and it's just drafted either um, too complex or slightly off the mark and say so we can adjust it. Um, sometimes we end up with more districts than we need. Um, so we've got, you know, a whole list of districts and, um, you know, some of them are really rarely used. Other districts are way more popular. Um, so I guess that's the zone district popularity contest. Um, but we look to figure out who um, who uses which districts and what they use them for and then talk about some consolidations if we need to. There's not a magic number of zone districts. Um, so we want to make sure that we get the right districts to implement the plans. Um, you know, might be one or two new districts here, might be one or two district consolidations here or there. Then we divide them up into categories. I'm going to go ahead and scroll into the document, actually. Whoops, I'm going to scroll past a lot of this stuff. Sorry, look away if you get sick to your stomach from scrolling. Okay, here's the big list of big ideas. So that's uh, around page 13, 14, 15. Then we get into the zone districts. We explain what we're doing. Um, we, we realize that maybe not planning commission, but definitely there are members of the community, there are members of organizations within the community that treat the um, zoning code as kind of sacrosanct, right? It's this document, it does this thing, we don't touch it. We figure out how to do what it says. Um, and we are, um, I guess we are heathens in that regard because we don't treat it that way. We're willing to rip it apart and make it do different things. But we try to explain our thought process and the goals for those changes so everybody can see what's going to happen. We also will have some side conversations that you'll notice about changes we're not making. Um, we know that people get a little concerned. You're changing my zoning. People might not understand exactly what zoning is. You may see some of them come in that way, but they know it means something about their property value. And so we try to, particularly in the residential districts, um, reassure people that, you know, for the most part, if your house is there, 
um, and the neighborhood's functioning, not a lot's going to happen to you, but there might be different change down the road. So we get into a look. This is this is kind of our overview look of what districts are functioning and what districts are not. The super simple way to look at this is on the left side of the table with the biggest color blocks. Those districts are used most frequently for one reason or another. Um, the blue is open space, so that's kind of lovely. Um, and then we get into some of the residential and industrial districts. And then on the left side, on the right side of the table, where it's starting to look pretty stripy and the stripes are thin, those districts aren't used very much. And so we take them apart and try to figure out what's going on and how to carry that concept forward if we need it. So then in this draft, you'll see we put a preliminary table of what we think we're going to do to consolidate or add or change zone districts. And after we met with you, um, we also had a really great, um, very lively conversation with planning staff, um, getting their input and feedback about what can be consolidated, what is working and what isn't working. And so we're looking for that you know, real live input, um, what's happening on the ground and where can we go with this and where are these districts causing problems or confusion. So you can see um, we're recommending some combinations. So we could combine um, RS40 and RS20 into RS20. One of our drafting rules is that as we are combining zone districts, we go into the more permissive district. We don't want to be in a position of inadvertently um, taking away uses or um, lot size in a district. So we could go from 40 to 20. That would give someone with a residential 40 district an extra lot depending on their setup. Um, and depending on if they actually have a 40,000 square foot lot, um, part of our discussion with staff has been that a lot of people have zoning that in no way actually reflects their lot sizes, which are far larger than their zoning is. And so that's going to be one of the things that we try to touch on. So we, we go forward and we try to figure out what a meaningful lineup of zone districts would be um, at, in to implement the um, plans that we're looking at. We move out of residential. You can, and we can talk about any of these in detail. I'm going to just continue with the bigger overview. We move into commercial. Um, most of our recommendations about commercial are here on page 20, 19, and 20, that we take um, the existing commercials and really move them into more of a mixed use district. And so we're mixing the commercial with residential and we move to figure out um, what would be getting in the way of getting residential in those districts, what would be important to getting residential in those districts. The reason that we started out with a recommendation of uh, five mixed use districts is to reflect different scales within the community. So um, an MU1 mixed use one would be um, smaller scale commercial, smaller scale residential. Um, you're probably not gonna get a large uh, multifamily apartment building in there. Um, Compare that to perhaps MU4, which might be community center. So that might be that more built out hotel, office, um, maybe some townhomes, maybe some apartments, and um, you know the, the more built out center there. So what we're looking at is within where this um, where the commercial is zoned, where can we move it into something um, that allows more mixed use. You'll remember from our conversation a couple of weeks ago that one of our key themes is going to be affordable housing. 
Um, in some regards, that's going to translate into technically affordable housing. In a lot of regards, it's going to translate into how are we looking at housing in the community? How are we looking at adding more housing at a variety of price ranges to Lawrence? And so opening up commercial districts to add residential is one opportunity to do that. Um, so we scroll down, we look at the industrial. Um, we had a really great conversation about the IBP district with steering committee. Really, it was a bit of a conversation about looking forward into what, what we see in our, you know, planning crystal ball about industrial um, moving, moving forward. We, you know, we, we had a long period of doing industrial in business parks, which is what the IBP recognizes. We're seeing um, some different approaches to industrial. We're seeing, um, you know, more tightly packed industrial um, without the big green spaces between it. We'll check and see if this is something Lawrence wants to see more of, um, or if this is, you know, we, we want to stick with the business park idea. We, we aren't, um, I have to say, we, we don't, we come in with a lot of recommendations, but then we want to hear what we think is going to work in the community. Um, we don't think it's our job to, you know, be the zoning dictators. That wouldn't be any fun. So when we say we're going to, you know, draft these new districts and bring them back to you, we're going to draft the districts, bring them back to you, and then we're all going to talk about it. And we're going to get more feedback about what we think works, what we think doesn't work. And um, so I would ask all of you to really, um, you know, when you read something, if you have questions or comments about it, bring it up. We're giving you a good recommendation, but we need to personalize it to Lawrence. So um, a couple other conversations we had um, with staff, with um, primarily with staff on this one, and some of the things we recognized in the code, um, possibly rolling the um, general public and institutional and hospital together. Um, we learned a little bit more about how um, we need to do some more outreach with Lawrence Memorial and have some conversations about what that might look like. Um, probably going to leave the UKU district doing its own thing out there, but we are going to talk about um, mixed use with um, the special purpose districts. We are seeing across the country that institutions like um, schools, hospitals, um, and civic organizations, uh, churches and temples, tend to have some property. And in communities that are really facing a housing crunch, those organizations are looking to put housing on some of their property. And so we want to um, see how we can make it possible to do that without a whole series of reviews um, getting in the way. All right. So this is just kind of the written version of what I just summarized for you. Um, we did take a look at the plan development overlay district and um, we have a list of things we want to dig in on with plan development. So our basic view is plan development is two things. It is a helpful tool and it's a symptom that the code isn't working. Um, if you're seeing a lot of plan development, that is likely people trying to work around something in the code that isn't getting them there. And so we, we don't, Ever recommend taking it away. It is always useful in specific situations, but we do really want to dig in about what it's doing to help people use the code. And we want to move that information back into the code. Um, we want to make it so you can come through and get your approvals without the extra layer of plan development. And so we have a list of things that we want to take a look at. Um, and then 
as we start drafting, we'll talk about some different ways um, to approach plan development and how to make sure that the base districts are carrying the load uh, so you don't need plan development to address what they can be doing. Plan development is super fun at the beginning. It's 25 years later when the staff who's doing this long after we've all retired, except maybe Becky because she's young forever, but um, it's looking at it going, what did they approve in 2023? What in the world were they thinking about? Um, you know, right now there are PDs out there from the 70s and 80s, and we hear from clients, well, we lost half the documents somewhere, and nobody knows where the microfiche is or the microfiche machine. So um, that is, that is, you know, we're, we create a mini zoning district every time we do that. So we really want to think about what we're up to. Okay, so we got into the use standards um, and took a look at them. The big thing is right now you've got two use tables going in the district. I'm just wondering before we move on, did we want to discuss some of those just part of that table there? And or are we continuing with this discussion of the zoning districts where where you were going with it? I thought we wanted to any place you guys want to go. Gary had mentioned focusing on some of this for a little bit. I'd love to have some scenarios just to help us kind of think through what this might look like. Um, uh, I'd asked, I think, in our meeting last time about if, if a big box retailer is going to come in, you know, which of those zoning districts might that fit in? Mm-hmm. You gave me an answer to that, but it, it kind of leads me to, to think, okay, well, then how does that then build out? I think the answer was, you know, it might fit into MU2, large neighborhood which is not what I would have imagined the answer to be, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, so how does, um, uh, my, my favorite example is Costco, um, just, <laughs> I just put that out there in the universe. Um, so if we, if a Costco comes to town and it's, and it's in this, and it's in that, um, that area, then what, what do we imagine the area around that to build out like? Do we, do we see apartments built up next to that? Do we see a, um, by design, do we want residential? Um, is that something we would want to encourage or allow? Share side of that. So I just, I just like to, to, to flesh some scenarios out a little bit. Yeah, and it doesn't be Costco; it can be anything else. Maybe I, I love the conversation about industrial and how that might fit in. It's got my brain wondering about: <clears throat> is our job as a planning commissioner going to become one more of understanding or having an opinion on compatibilities? rather than a formulaic, does this meet that? I think we I think we want to go with both of those. And I'm trying to scroll through to the character area identification. And who knows where I put that? Okay, so let's go back up to zone district. So your question. Okay, I'm sorry, wait. I obviously can no longer scroll and talk. <laughs> Well, while you're scrolling, my, my question is sort of, you know, another scenario. I'm yeah. focusing more on residential districts, what it would look like with an existing residential RS7. I mean, in order to get duplexes in there for infill and density, that zoning district change, what would it become? Uh, and then I have a follow-up question. So, yeah, okay. I'm going to do Gary, and then I'm going to come back to the duplexes. So what one of the things that we're proposing is looking across Lawrence and identifying 
what we're calling at the moment character areas. And that's, that's a, um, it's a concept that we pull over from form-based regulations um, because you can generally look at most of a community and um, figure out a range of years um, in which that part of the community was developed. And you're going to find some similarities across the development from those years, right? So you have the um, first plat of Lawrence um, or the, you know, the downtown core area, very traditional. Um, you might have the, also the traditional um, residential surrounding that. And traditional is a loose term. We might end up putting some years on that um, because we, you know, we, we want to make sure that it doesn't say, you know, this is traditional and it's the right thing. We're just saying traditional, it's a period of time when people were building like this. We move out a little bit. We're into something that's a little more suburban. Um, it's not suburban anymore because Lawrence has grown past it. Um, but that's what it was at that point in time. So that might be when we first hit some of those post-war, um, post-World War II um, dwellings that are in the city. And um, we move out to that, to what is more um, more recent, more modern um, suburban development. And then we have kind of that um, rural interface, the fringe around the edges. So that, that was our starting point for thinking about the community. And why do we think about it that way? Because um, where Gary was, context matters in how we put structures and uses into a community. Um, one of the things that people find very jarring um, is infill that has nothing to do um, with what's going on around it. Now, I don't mean it has to be architecturally identical, um, but as, as humans, we perceive structures in a certain way. And so we, we think in terms of um, what does that structure do to blend into its surroundings in terms of the height and the bulk, maybe the windows, um, and part of the conversation we want to have is, you know, in the more compact parts of the city, is that where we want to get in to the regulations a little more specifically and talk about how you're going to align in the neighborhood when you put an infrastructure in. So if we go back to that um, idea of putting a duplex in an existing neighborhood, do, you know, do we want to say, um, you know, if it's a two-story duplex in a neighborhood that's primarily one story, um, we need to think about how that fits in with the units around it. Um, you can't go up to three stories, even if the zoning height allows it, because um, all of a sudden you're going to be casting shadow on the people who are there and who are around you. So in, in the ways that we can within the code, we think about fit. And we are capable of looking at that fit in four or five different ways. So we we think in some aspects of the code, we want to move away from one size fits all design and we want to do design that's more in alignment with the character area where it's being built. Again, not down to the architectural detail. And I think that within the community, um, you guys handle design in a variety of different ways. And that might be something that takes place outside of the code. Um, that might be part of the discussion. But we, we want to see in working through some of the hurdles of doing infill and doing redevelopment, what we can do to ease the way um, so the neighbors know that it's not going to be most of the time incredibly insensitive to what's already in the neighborhood. So when we look at the RS7, the 7,000 square foot district, 
we're recommending that we combine it with RS5. So that's simple math. That's just dimensional change. So if you have RS7 and it's really a 10,000 square foot lot, which we understand that, uh, you know, there are whole pieces of RS7 that are larger than 7,000, depending on where the structure is on the lot, if we um, switch you to RS5, you could put a second structure on the lot. Then we get into the uses and we take a look at the use table and see, you know, are is this the district, the RS5? Is this where we start saying, you know, everyone can have two units on a lot or everyone can have, you know, three. You can do, um, you know, what we see sometimes set up as a mansion house, right? So it's three units, but it looks like a single family structure, but it has three separate entrances to it or a series of you know, three townhomes or four townhomes, if that's what we decide. So part of the discussion around the zoning update is, are there places where we are really at single family detached or single unit detached development that we want to move to um, something that has a little more density? Or as we look at RS5, are, are we looking at getting that density through finishing off the ADU discussion. So are we saying this is appropriate for one ADU or as we're seeing in some communities for two ADUs, one is attached and one is detached. So that there is a conversation about smaller lot sizes in the districts and a conversation about um, expanding the types of structures or uses allowed within that district to see where we can get some gentle change, where we can see some infill change, and to think about if those districts are used in the future, where a developer might want to use them um, for you know, even more development down the road. So what, what are these districts doing? Um, one thing that we do see in some communities, and we may do this in Lawrence, um, where you have a very attentive public, so it's not like we're gonna slide a new code in with nobody paying attention to it. But if, if we're concerned about neighborhoods becoming too dense, um, we could create, we could break off some, you know, in the downtown districts, not the downtown proper, but maybe that, you know, uh, first ring of residential districts, and they are a little stricter than what the districts look like further out. And you guys do not have to carry any of this in your head, because we're going to come back to you with all these questions. We're going to be talking about this as we do the drafting. So did I answer the questions and does that make sense? Do we want to dig deeper? Gary, I did yours kind of at a surface level. We can go deeper if you want to. I'm, I think I've got a, a better understanding. I appreciate that. I'd go to Sharon and I think she had some follow-ups. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I was just, uh, so that helped with the uh, infill question. One of the things that I'm hearing um, that get back to, to character and the uniqueness of Lawrence is People in general aren't really all that concerned about, let's say, uh, some infill moving into the neighborhood. But because some neighborhoods are very close to the university, this is a college town. Mm -hmm. And so the worry is not so much that the duplex or the infill happens. It's who's going to be in there. Mm -hmm. And the worry is students. Right. Well, that's just going to turn our neighborhood into a bunch of students and we're going to have parties at night and that kind of thing. Um, so a little bit of uniqueness with being in a college town and the university not housing most of its students or a lot of its students. And that spills over into the next door neighborhoods 
And that's the fear is that's who's going to fill in those, um, those smaller units. I think um, I, I'm, I'm having a flashback. The most recent college town I worked in is um, Cedar Falls, Iowa. So University of Northern Iowa, they're not the same scale um, as KU is and yet the same problems. Um, so what we, um, what we tend to do in this situation is be really aware um, of, you know, the concern about students um, moving out. And we tend to use um, an approach of looking at peer communities um, to see how they've done it. And so, you know, you know, you're in the category of town and gown. And um, so what we'll do is have a discussion with steering committee. We can have a discussion this morning. We'll, you know, we'll pick up some um, peer communities and um, that have more recent code updates and see how they've addressed some of these things. Cause we want the experience on the ground and we want to be able to call their planning departments and say, you know, what's going on with the kids? Are they partying in the neighborhoods once you allow the ADUs in? Um, so we, we can't, just say this is best practice, trust us. We have to be able to say we went out and explored how this is working in, you know, um, maybe Manhattan, I don't know, probably more like we would reach uh, Chapel Hill, maybe we would. Who do you guys think your peer communities are in terms of that? Maybe let's tackle that right now so we can get our research going on this. And I hated saying Chapel Hill because I didn't like them the whole time I went to school there, but they actually do good things zoning wise. So if if we were to want to send a message that other other college communities have survived some of these changes, who might we look at? That's too many. Iowa? Iowa, okay. Munch. Yeah, I was going to suggest but Iowa City. Iowa or City, mm -hmm. per perhaps Bloomington, Indiana. Okay. Oh, good. We wrote that code. Oh, good. I think the ones we typically use. The commission may agree or disagree with me on this one. Is we tend to look at Durham, North Carolina, Lincoln, Nebraska, Lubbock, Texas, Norman, Oklahoma, Columbia, Missouri, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Boulder, College Station, Fayetteville, Arkansas, Bloomington. Okay, Jeff, yeah. stop. <laughs> it's, kind of a, it's a list we kind of keep it run with for over the years there, but it's really, we're trying to, we always try to find places that have equivalency to KU and Haskell student populations yeah. as a proportion of the population as a whole yeah. warrant. So those okay. tend to be in roughly equal measures, but we, I can... I can send that list out too, but I not to, that. Yeah. Does that help spark some ideas? Well, there's a quick 20 for you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I am never not surprised by what's hiding in Jeff's brain somewhere. That is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, I think that's going to be really important for those close in neighborhoods, at least from the people I've talked to, okay. um, to KU. That would that's their big fear. Yeah, one other thing with the the older neighborhoods, yeah, is we have some, you know, there are some capacity issues. So even if we are to have the ability to split lots, we still have, you know, street width. We still have the old sewer system, the old water lines, and, and the last thing anyone in a neighborhood is going to want to see is we're going to allow split lots to get in maybe four more houses, but then we create a special benefit district 
where everybody has to pay to upgrade all the infrastructure for four houses. So how does that fit into the analysis when you look at a historical development and how to group zoning and your analysis of going from the old, the original town plat out through the suburbs? I think, I think that is um, a multi-part discussion. So what we would ask first off is um, how are we doing with infrastructure? So uh, when, when we do the district consolidations, we'll sit down with staff um, at, after we have a staff draft put together and we'll sit down with the zoning map and we'll start looking at where, um, where some of these changes are gonna have that kind of impact. Um, we will ask questions about infrastructure capacity. Um, we're also going to ask the question of, are we allowing in existing infrastructure capacity to drive the change, or do we need to recommend ways to get to the change and at the same time figure out how to get to an equitable approach to a financially equitable approach to the infrastructure capacity issue. Um, we, you know, we could do a special district, like you pointed out. Um, if this is, you know, if it's a large enough development, we can ask the developer to carry the bulk of the costs um, of doing the upgrade. And it would depend on how bad the infrastructure is in the place where we're looking at it. Um, we can look at the city and say, you know, Plan 2040 says we need to be doing this sort of change and expansion. Is the city putting any um, matching funds into this? Um, so it, it's a multi-part question. I, we get this question because it's, it's like a, a solid, really practical question. What happens when we do this? Um, and we always find that we've got to get policy direction first. So we need to know if we're going to go ahead and lead with the changes and have that cascade of problem solving follow it, or if there are places where the cascade of problem solving is going to be so problematic that the change isn't going to be worth it. So, you know, I think from an engineering perspective, leaving it all alone would be a great answer. Uh, but from a growing city perspective, you know, kind of solving it as we go might be the answer with an eye toward, hey, the neighborhood didn't create this problem. So asking them to fix it is in effect double dipping. They've already paid for their roads and infrastructure. So those are all questions that we can put out to the community and um, raise in discussion and see where we're going. That's also questions that come back to the city, that, you know, come back to planning commission and back to the commissioners and, and leadership positions, you know, Plan 2040 says we want to go this way. It's going to require these actions. Are we on, on track? Is there anything you'd add to that? No, that was, that was perfect. <laughs> well, I have, I have another capacity question that I'll piggybacking on. Uh, Jim here is that um, thinking about downtown and altering parking, if we were not going to require parking be provided like we do now, uh, with downtown development, the cascading effect of that is parking on all the neighborhoods. And now mm -hmm. we have a capacity issue with parking in the neighborhoods where the residents can't park because it's overflows. So I'm just, I'm thinking about some of the, along the lines of cascading effects yep. of some of this and how we can deal with that within this planning. Yeah. 
let me ask you guys a practical question. Um, if, if we did required parking for residential downtown, but nothing else, do you think that would stop redevelopment? Would it be so expensive to try to figure out how to meet the parking requirements for residential that um, the development community would just walk away from it? Well, that's a staff question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Drew, what's uh, the answer? I not fully caffeinated answer at the moment is, you know, I think that may depend on the size of the redevelopment quite briefly, because if you're looking at, you know, structured parking at twenty to $30,000 a cost per, per stall, that may be a different item than if you're doing a surface lot at two to three thousand dollars. There, there may be some implications to that that makes it a high entry to get into it. I don't know the specifics to it, but that's just my gut reaction at the moment. I think that's when we when we go further. I think that we're going to have to pair what I'm hearing preliminarily from you guys and how you look at it is we're going to have to pair code changes with practicalities right so it's not i can't be just completely pie in the sky code changes we're going to have to ask about infrastructure and ask about parking um, and figure out what that looks like have you does i don't think lawrence does stickered neighborhood parking i assume nobody wants to have that kind of fun i do but yeah <laughs> The discussion is still ongoing. I mean, this is parking has been an issue for decades and nobody can ever seem to come up with um, an actual plan to even work with. So I know that uh, parking enforcement is working on trying to figure that out at the moment. A lot of the, the big hurdles that were resolved with part of the downtown parking improvements that just happened. So they're trying to work on pilot projects to see about expanding it beyond commercial centers, but that's just getting off the ground, not too far along yet. So okay. one of the, the issues that, that can arise is if you make, if Lawrence really wants to have alternative modes of transportation, mm -hmm. then you simply limit parking and that forces more Sharon's to be on their bicycles, which you do. It forces people to take public transportation. It forces people to walk. It forces um, shop stores to be locally oriented rather than just downtown or in a mall. And so I think that has to be a, a discussion uh, how uh, stringent does Lawrence want to be on um, alternative transportation other than cars? And a way to do it is you just don't have parking spaces for people. And does that create a multitude of problems? Absolutely. Um, well, that's one of the things that you have to pair this with is what does our multimodal transportation look like? Yeah. Because without that, everybody's going to park in the neighborhoods. Yeah. There's no... Yeah. I'll turn it. I agree with all of that. I, I have another question. Yeah. Unless somebody else does, because I don't want to take up. No. Uh, just thinking about, how do I say this? Uh, so the zoning 
So these, let's say these, these are similar categories were adopted that would overlay on what's existing now, change the zoning. So I'm thinking about the RS40 and the RS20. That's combined. So I, I understand the logic of now an RS40, existing RS40 would now have another lot. But going forward into new areas, new developments, uh, possible future annexations, uh, within a certain uh, growth area of Lawrence, I imagine we wouldn't want to have RS40 and RS20 for newer areas if we're sticking with Plan 2040 and infill. Um, we wouldn't want that to be an option potentially for a new development. So, but right now we don't really have a way of really if a project comes in and says they want RS40, RS20, we don't have a lot of leeway in saying, well, we just don't, we want it to be denser, you know, right? And we've had that a couple times where we would really prefer this to be an RS5, but the application comes in as RS7. So going forward, how do we limit, let's say, a residential zoning district we don't really want to have? And the other side of that is we also currently don't have a mechanism where somebody comes in and says, we are, well, we want RS5, that we don't end up with lots that are 10,000 square feet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, we explored a little bit the whole urban reserve zone district, um, what it's doing right now. And we had a preliminary discussion about this concept of, do we annex property and deal with planning and zoning later? Or do we hold their feet to the fire at the same time that they're annexing into the city and say, we want to know now what the development is going to be? So my understanding, and please correct me if I have this wrong, is that Lawrence currently um, annexes in and the property comes in as urban reserve and then it takes on the appropriate zoning down the road. Although there's nothing stopping people from not doing urban reserve, but this is kind of the practice. So to, you know, to the extent that you, that the city has, um, has an annexation plan. And if the plan has, you know, future development pattern of any sort, which you're going to have to sort through to figure out utility extension, then the zoning should line up with that. Um, and I am not sure, I can't remember from our conversation a couple of weeks ago, whether that's actually happening. What we walked away with is that we're not seeing urban reserve not work right now. Um, honestly, that we were in the same place as you. Um, we said, hey, how about if you get rid of this option and tell people that you want to see them zone to what the development's going to be, because that sets the expectations for that development. And it also helps, you know, if there are neighbors out there, see what's going on. Um, so I think we're, where we are right now is neutral. We can go both ways. If it's if it's working and you're ultimately getting that development um, where the city wants to see it in alignment with the planning and the infrastructure, then maybe this isn't where we want to focus our energy. But if we are concerned that we're going to end up with large lot development around the urban ed, the rural edge of the city, and that's going to cause um, extra infrastructure costs because that development really doesn't pay for itself like smaller a lot 
um, in-town development does, or, you know, if you're going to see a continuation of a pattern um, that's not getting more housing in the community, then, then we can change up that process. What we would do in that case um, is ask the applicant to come in with a, you know, overall development plan that shows what the zoning is going to be and to, you know, be real with it, not show everything at 40s. We'd like to see where your 5,000 square foot lots are. To the other side of that question, we we are going to recommend maximum lot sizes um, to, to get to that place of, yeah, you're telling us you're doing fives or sevens and you're actually doing 40s. We'll see how that conversation plays out in the community and we'll bring it back to planning commission, to steering committee, and to the commissioners, the city commissioners, and we'll figure out where we want to draw the line on that one. What is what is the the downside of not having a maximum lot size? Or is it that people are skirting the density that the city wants to see? If that's the case, do we want to do it with lot size or do we want to do it with minimum required densities? There are a couple different ways we can come at this. And so as we get the zone districts reconstructed, so you guys can take a look at it and illustrate it, we'll bring this discussion back. We've That whole maximum lot size, lots are really big conversation has really threaded through this conversation, our conversation with the city and um, the, you know, where do we want to go with annexation in the future? Is It's on our radar we don't hear that it's broken on your end, but you know we're also all trying to look forward and no one has said that's a terrible idea and we're not doing it. So we can continue to explore it. Have you worked in states where you can actually, I mean, in Kansas, the annexation of land, we can't put conditions on what happens to that property. So if you have a full-blown plan that comes at the same time, as an annexation proposal, there's nothing in you, and the annexations approved, there's nothing to hold, make that plan happen. It can always come back with a different type of proposal in the future. Have you worked in any communities where they've been able to make annexation contingent on following through with the plan that's proposed at the same time? We, uh, a couple of years ago, I worked in Montana um, and they hate regulation at any and every level. And so you can't condition anything. Uh, but we ended up working with the um, infrastructure improvement agreement as our sort of um, approach to saying you're going to do this and this and this. And at the time, and the um, we, I was working in Billings and Yellowstone County, and their setup was pretty similar to what you guys have. The county didn't want the development, so they were good about saying we're not giving you the infrastructure to serve the development, which you know required the property to go into the city. And the um, before it came in, the city was using the infrastructure agreement um, to come up with some of the conditions they wanted to see. I'm happy to reach back to staff in Billings and. Um, get their documentation and we can go through that and look at it with city attorney's office and see if that might be something we do. Okay. If that's not the thing, we'll keep looking. There are um, lots of different ways of getting to where we want to be. And I think we're seeing more communities say we don't want to have an annexation fight. We don't want this to not be what 
um, level of density we're looking for. So they're they're being more proactive on that end. That's very interesting. So so effectively, what they're doing is prior to the annexation requests, there has to be some negotiation with the community about what infrastructure will be provided and who's going to be paying for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Yep. Yep, just one just one approach. Um, if that's where we decide to go, we'll make sure we look at a few different ways of doing it to find the one that works best. Elizabeth, uh, uh, go back to the parking question for just a minute, to the parking oh, sure. conversation. Do we have a way of of putting questions out to some of our community, I'll call them experts. So can we, can we, can we pull our downtown, can we pull our developers with that question that you asked, Hey, if we do something different with parking, is that going to stop development or, or try to get some feedback from them on, on what they think might enable? Mm-hmm. Us? Yes, we, we, we can, um, we can do some targeted polling um, and we can set up um a survey on the project website that's um, invitation only. So if we can um, figure out who we want to reach out to, the chamber or downtown merchants or development community, um, we can target them with a poll and bring that information back. And I think that's a really good, interesting idea. So we can get that. Um, we could start talking about parking now because usually that conversation takes an entire project and we still look around and go, hmm. Uh, to, to Jim and Sharon's point, uh, this, this conversation has been around here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. A lot of opinions formed. So, okay, we'll put something together and share it with staff to take a look at, and then um, make sure we're capturing all the questions. And um, we can also um, work with steering committee on that one. That would be um, a great thing to talk about at the beginning of March. So I'm looking at um, 8.30 your time, 7.30 my time. More questions? Do we keep going? And uh, Yeah. I've got another question. Um, Just real quick. So are there, in your zoning plan, are there strictly residential zones? Because the mixed use, which is what we're trying to encourage, so... Are are there still going to be strictly residential zones, or is there a possibility... Well, I'm just thinking of in-home businesses. Um, there's a few coffee shops, businesses around town that are now, um, what's that term? They're not allowed anymore by curtain zoning, but they're grandfathered Are they non-conforming? In. Yes, thank you. Non-conforming. Yep. Yep. Um, is that still going to be a possibility? So we um, handle the- that through how we allocate the uses in the districts. So we can, as we update the use table and look at it, um, we can decide to loosen up a little bit. And, you know, if we're looking at some of our, maybe our multi-dwelling um, residential districts or our, um, you know, uh, medium density or high density, or even, you know, some of the um, smaller lot single dwelling districts, we can say, yes, a coffee shop is allowed here. And we can set the rules for that, right? So you have to be able to provide the parking or you, you know, can't roast at four in the morning and wake the neighbors up or whatever we decide um, those generally applicable rules are for that use. So we, we can extend 
um, more occupations into neighborhoods or more commercial uses into neighborhoods. We can also, you know, go so far as to say, um, we're allowing you to have your coffee shop in your neighborhood as long as you are on a local collector street. We don't want you doing that back in the middle of the neighborhood. That is where you're really going to irritate the neighbors. So we can think about a variety of criteria and kind of craft a set of regulations that go with that. And that's something that we will talk about as we go through the uses, because when when we rewrite the use table, we give you an as-is use table and then the recommended changes. And we kind of highlight where we're recommending the changes. And so we can talk about, did we capture everything? Is there something else going on? I think this is a fun time. If there's ever a fun time to do zoning, this is a fun time to do this because post-COVID, I think we all might be looking at it a little differently. And so we might have some changes we want to make where before we were, you know, real rule oriented. Now we might want to say, yeah, a coffee shop you can walk to is a great idea. Let's do that. What I was going to say before you chimed in with that question is um, I brought up time because I know you guys um, need to leave the room in a little bit, but I'm also, I'm happy to do another meeting if you have time in your agenda at some point. Um, We can spend as much time as we want walking through this so you're comfortable when you see the code um, draft come your way. And piggyback on Elizabeth's other comment about the tables and things. That's also probably when we have the conversation about what is permitted versus a special use versus temporary versus accessory uses. And there's there's levels of it that our code can't fathom at the moment. And so that's an opportunity for us to understand, you know, how are people really using things and have those discussions about do how much do we need to engage with it or do we not want to engage with it? How much of it is permissive versus how much needs to have a hard regulation. So that's upcoming much further down the line, but it's, it's going to be a key discussion too when we start programming those use tables about what level of process do we think the community would like to have versus what do they want to expedite. So that those kind of changes you're talking about, are they not part of this? Is that something that's going to be on staff after this is done? No, that'll be part of this. It'll be part of this. Yeah, okay. be part of that table discussion. Probably, be, I don't know if it's module or one or or. yeah that'll be the first thing up i'm looking for if you give me two seconds i'm gonna pull up an example of um something that we're working on right now not for lawrence while you're looking at that i was going to say commissioner munch you look very good in your prison stripes (laughs) Uh, appreciate that i I was going for that or superhero villains um uh, (laughs) that was my second thought (laughs) <laughs> all right i'm opening this document it's um it's big so if you guys have another question let's jump in and then we can come back to the use table not on this topic i'll wait okay. all right Almost there. Well, I'm almost there. Word is not almost there. There we go. Okay. 
Let's share this thing. Okay, so this is um, an in-process use table um, from Grand Junction, Colorado, which is um, a community we're working in right now. Um, smaller than you are and their school, um, Colorado Mesa University is um, smaller than KU. But what I'm showing you is kind of what the working draft looks like and what you'll see um, as we get into the drafting process. So we've got the, um, the changed zone districts. Um, so here's how we'll share it back with you so we can continue the conversation like we're having right now. So here are the current zone districts. We've rolled them into these proposed zone districts. Here are the current use allowances. And you can see some of these are in bold. And so that's where we're recommending changes. So you'll get a version of the Lawrence use tables that look a lot like this. And what we've highlighted for you, let me move into commercial here. So we're highlighting where we're recommending um, changes to use names, where we've taken uses out, the community corrections facilities in Grand Junction really shouldn't be allowed downtown. Um, I don't know, maybe it should. Um, we're recommending that they might want some community assembly um, in their industrial districts um, because they're trying to weave that sort of um, some uses out into the industrial and they have industrial along their riverfront. And so they're saying, we could do some more activities out there. We could do some bike riding out there. We could have some breweries out there and we could have maybe a small amphitheater or something. Um, so this is what it will look like when you get it. And the reason we do it this way is um, to remind you of the questions you wanted to ask and to really highlight the changes that we're making. So what we want to say a couple of times is we, we really appreciate you guys asking questions. We try to capture your questions and we try to reflect them back in a way that you can see that we have addressed the, the thing that we're talking about. And if you don't see it, we um, definitely invite you to come back to it and say, OK, again, with the coffee shop, where are we? Where are we allowing that? Let's see if we're doing coffee shops in neighborhoods in Grand Junction. So, okay, so that was kind of that. We actually, we will not go down the road with Grand Junction because it's 400 pages with a million edits and we'll be here all day. So next question, should I bring us back to where we were? Elizabeth, uh, I'm curious if it's possible to have that data in a map form to go alongside the table form so we can yeah. see how it applies in yeah. our communities. Yeah, I think that that's... Um, that is something that we're gonna um, need to do in Lawrence, um, different than Grand Junction because they can't get enough change from their current code. So they don't even wanna know what was in the old code, but we're gonna do a little more step-by-step -step process here. So I'm gonna do districts mapping uses so we can do a three-way conversation about how that goes. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna bring us back to document. Something I tend to say um, with great regularity is that 
I can be a very slow thinker, a very slow processor. And I always have my best questions about a day after the conversation. Um, If anybody else works in my mode and you've got questions tomorrow or the next day or whenever, if you send them to Jeff or Becky or Drew, um, they'll all get back to us and we'll work to answer them for you. Okay. So that was districts and uses. Um, After I get back there, the next thing we think about after districts and uses are development standards. And um, like parking, those are the standards that are more generally applicable across the community. Um, And that's another place where we we think um, in some of them, we wanna dig into this um, character idea. So, you know, we might have places where we think um, more parking is good. Um, something that we did in um, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, not Cedar Falls, is um, gave a lot more thought to how to do shared residential and commercial parking downtown because they were seeing a lot of downtown redevelopment and most of it coming in was residential, um, but they still have a fairly um, industrial base right at their downtown. Um, Quaker Oats does their manufacturing just right outside of downtown Cedar Rapids. And so, so we talked about where do we share parking, um, you know, have, have daytime worker parking, evening resident parking. Um, we did different, you know, different design standards um, for um, landscaping or streetscaping in the more urban areas than we did in the um, more residential or rural areas. So those are all the standards that come in um, as development standards. So right now you've got Article 9, uh, parking, loading, and access, Article 10, landscaping and screening. Um, the code has a lot of things wrapped into Article 11. Um, that's residential protection. Um, that's intersection visibility or site triangles, um, outdoor lighting. Um, then it's got some um, more infrastructure stuff, performance agreements, sidewalks. Um, retail market impact analysis, which um, just got tucked in there. We're going to find a new home for that. Um, and then the general development standards for mixed-use districts. We will go through all of these um, and try to comb out any regulations that are zone district specific and move those back into the zone districts. Then we'll try to articulate um, how the standards work across the character areas that we think they need to work for. So we usually have um, base parking standards. And then if we decide that there's different standards for downtown, we try to um, call that out very clearly. Um, Same for landscaping or screening. We will look through all of the existing standards. So like the general development standards for mixed use districts, we we will look at those, we will ask, what's working and what's not. Um, We have a sense, particularly in the mixed use category that the current code, um, just because of the timeframe when it was drafted and maybe some uncertainty about mixed use at that point is more complex than it needs to be. And we could back off on that just a little bit um, and kind of put a little more faith in the idea that mixed use is something that does work and we don't have to regulate it to the level of granularity that the current code does. So we'll bring that back and talk about it. Um, We've been asked um, from Plan 2040, from the downtown plan and from the community 
to look at some other development standards. Um, and so some of those we have regrouped in the sustainability category. Some of those will be coming in in the housing um, category. And so in the second round of drafting, so across um, late spring and early summer, we'll tackle all of these. So then we can look at them and compare how they're going to work with the zone districts and uses to make sure we have a cohesive whole. So I'm going to, that was a lot in about two short paragraphs. So I'm going to stop and see if you guys want to dig in here, if we've um, exhausted your capacity for zoning so early in the morning, the caffeine's still working. I'm going to be very interested to see where mixed use discussion goes because our code amendment came from one property in North Lawrence. And that's why it's so um, restrictive. It was ah. because all the input uh -huh. So it came into the code uh -huh. that way. So how we're able to expand that, that's going to be an interesting process to watch. I love knowing that. Thank you. That explains some things. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Fourth and Elm. You'll have to give us the background sometime <laughs> on that. Excellent. Is this the sort of section that would, well, I don't know exactly what's in development standards. I don't know. One of the, the questions I have um, just running through this is uh, allowing or encouraging um, certain sustainability practices um, with development, like uh, allowing regulations that allow and encourage solar panels on rooftops for commercial, for commercial solar panels on parking lots, mm -hmm. uh, gray water use, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. So where we want to go with that, we, we kind of have a working framework um, for sustainability. So first and foremost, uh, compact mixed use development helps most communities hit a lot of their sustainability goals. You're seeing more walking, seeing less parking, seeing less water use, um, seeing more density. So kind of the, the core of the code, as you saw from the zone districts, is going to focus on, you know, how do we encourage uh, more compact development, particularly in new development? How, and, you know, we um, have a long history. And I, I say we, because um, I grew up in Kansas City and went to school at KU. I think um, some of you guys know that. And, but we have a lot of roadway and a lot of sprawl and that's, you know, part of it. And the question is, can we conceive of mixed use greenfield development as, you know, we're moving out? That goes back to the question about when we're seeing annexation, um, can we not do it with a lot of large lots? And so we reconceptualize development patterns to um, more connected, more walkable, more bikeable. Um, I think we have, do we have Sharon getting on her bike or is that Susie getting on her bike? Um, so all of us doing more of that, that, that limits um, our footprint, our water use, our gas emissions, but there's more to that. So then we move into the things that the land use and development code impacts in terms of building and site design practices. So how do we make adaptive reuse of existing buildings easier to accomplish. Um, adaptive reuse is very green construction, right? We're not 
um, taking down trees. We're not, um, you know, using land that's holding carbon that wasn't used previously. Um, we have some infrastructure in place. We look also, just like you were asking, at renewable and alternative energies. So we do that in two ways. We make sure the regulations aren't barriers to putting um, solar or wind on your residential, commercial, or industrial site. Um, we do pull up the mapping for that. Um, NREL has great solar mapping and wind mapping. So we just remind the community that this is actually useful um, energy source in Lawrence. And um, then once we make sure that we haven't like set you know, building height standards as a barrier or what you can do in your setbacks as a barrier. We also back up and we make sure that we have the regulations in place for when the community hits um, the place that you want to be. So like we look at EV parking requirements, electric vehicle parking requirements, not necessarily to require them, although that could be our conversation by the time we get going with this code, um, but to make sure that you have the solar standards in place, the wind standards in place, the EV parking standards in place, so that when it becomes a need, um, you can kick them in and use them. So, and then last up, we look at environmentally sensitive lands and natural resource protection. Um, the code has some of this information in it already, but we wanna make sure that we um, are clear about areas where we're limiting um, the impact of development. Um, I, do you remember some of the um, arguments about, um, was it South Lawrence traffic way going through the bigger wetlands? That was fun, um, lasted forever, may still be going on, but that's exactly the kind of conversation that we wanna see um, that we're bringing in to the regulations. So this is our framework for getting there, but for each of these, we're gonna dig down um, and make sure that we've got regulations in place that work for the community. Did that get to what you were thinking? Was that like way overkill yes. for what you were thinking? <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Yep. Elizabeth, okay. yep. Um, I'm reminded of something um, when it comes to, you know, parking and um, um, I guess it, intermediate between, um, you know, single occupancy vehicles and public transit is ride shares. Yeah. And I'm curious if you have experience with, um, um, regulating availability of like rideshare pickup and drop off drop off zones, especially in commercial areas. I have a colleague um, who has done more with the rideshare and with like looking forward into the um, self driving vehicles and mm -hmm. this whole I emerging idea of and even when you think about you know like when you said rideshare. I went to car share, but you're probably Lyft and Uber in there right. also. So how do we manage our curbside um, is, is an important concept. Um, also with smaller delivery trucks, right? Yes. We're seeing more, you know, the Amazon truck is parked right on mass. Um, or, or Tennessee right, and Kentucky streets. Yeah, in exactly. The, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was driving down Tennessee to make sure my old house was still there and I had to zoom around an Amazon guy. Um, so we can, I can add that to the list. We're looking at, um, at how at the most efficient use of curbs and, you know, how we've got all of these um, different vehicle options moving around the community. To okay. the extent that that's ours to do in the code, we'll tackle it. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Not to be the bearer of time and things like that, but we're, we're reaching our hard stop here at nine o'clock. So I just wanted to 
put that out there and let everybody know. It's a, this is probably the, the first of many conversations to be had. So if we didn't touch on it yet, we'll be touching on it in the future. So mm -hmm. to put that out for everyone's knowledge. Thanks, Jeff. So as we approach that uh, nine o'clock hour, are there any other any remaining questions that we want to get into today? Uh, just, a, just a quick comment about um, just looking uh, forward to seeing the de more details, of course, but just looking for um, elements of flexibility because we, mm -hmm. as we've encountered before, mm -hmm. I mean, certain there are conflicting goals sometimes where we want to talk about on-street parking, but maybe we also want to talk about green infrastructure that would take up parking space. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Uh, that's just a small example, but just, in, and these cascading effects with parking, well, we don't want to have, you know, massive parking lots, but what does that do to the neighborhoods? I'm just looking for um, flexibility as we look at site by site by site with future development options and future development proposals, uh, you know, where that flexibility is going to be. Yeah, no, that's the... Like, the great fun thing, um, so many fun things, kind of our paradox, right? We're writing rules and we know they need to be flexible. And so we try to do that in a few different ways. We, um, we first off do exactly what you're doing, try to identify the places where we will need that flexibility. So often um, it is in site-specific decision-making. So we could have a general rule that, you know, we would really love... Um, if parking lots were designed um, so stormwater drained into, you know, a middle um, mitigation um, ditch. Thank you. That was the word I couldn't come up with. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're trying to get redevelopment going, that space might be too expensive um, to have that stormwater mitigation happen that way. It might be way better to do it um, through, you know, a constructed system with pipes. And so we we try to think of the places where we're going to need alternatives and build those in as options in the code. Um, and so we we say, okay, if you've hit this fork in the road, we're going to give you three choices. Um, and depending on you know your circumstances, your lot, and the context of the development around you, one of these three choices should get you there. If that's not the case, um, we go with. Um, a round of administrative adjustments, site-specific administrative adjustments. So we try to set it up so um, staff has the opportunity to move things around in 10 or 15% increments. Um, so, you know, if you need to adjust a side setback by five feet um, so that you can get that full last parking space in there, that should be something that you can accomplish. And then finally, um, we do back up and say, okay, you know, maybe we keep plan development and we limit it to plan development for sustainability, plan development for affordable housing and plan development for historic conservation. And within those areas, we know we're working around something bigger that's a community priority and that's a good use of plan development. Those are some options, but we, we do recognize that the rules need exceptions and we try to build those into the code to that they don't have to be done on the fly with conditions on the approval or, you know, some one-off plan development that's going to be a nightmare down the road. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
All right, folks, unless there's any other questions today, we're at uh, my clock, uh, just a minute and a half away from that nine o'clock hour. Um, I'll thank Elizabeth for the great work that you're doing and for giving us this opportunity to talk to you. Uh, staff, thank you guys, Drew, Becky, um, and uh, Jeff. And uh, we'll adjourn for now and uh, be back together again. Uh, was it just next week? Yeah. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jim, are you at the 15th?